0: And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O house of Israel. The word of the Lord.
1: Will you pray with me? Father, it's hard to believe this is the last Sunday of 2015. This year has just flown by. Father, I can imagine that in a room even this size, there are all kinds of experiences and assessments, verdicts that we may render, Lord God, as it relates to whether or not 2015 was a good year. And yet, by your grace and mercy, we are still inhaling and exhaling. We are here. Some of us have gone through things that the average person would have lost their mind over. And we're even baffled, how did we make it through? And The answer is, it's your goodness and mercy that has followed us, and we thank you. Others of us, this has been a rich, abundant year of prosperity. In goodness, where it seems like we can't even hold the blessings that you have sent our way. And of course, we rejoice in that and we praise you for that. And yet, Lord God, in either extreme, we say this about you you are good and have been good and will be good. We bless the Lord at all times, and your praise shall continually be in our mouths. Now, Fathers, we finish out the year, round third base, head for home, look to 2016. I do pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us yet again, that you would deposit in us, Lord God, what it is you want us to hear and know about who you are. For those of us who have been adopted into your family, Lord God, by grace through faith, give us ears to hear as long, as, uh, alongside of, Lord God, those who are here who don't know you. they're here, maybe visiting family and friends, Lord God. God, speak to all of us, no matter where we may be on the spiritual continuum. And to that end, that I'm available to you. Use me, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into Park Slope. Brooklyn, and to share the word of God with you. It's so good being with you. Uh, Our family, uh, as I mentioned to you last time uh, I was here, we moved from Memphis here on May 23rd, caught a one way ticket, so this is our first Christmas. 70 something degrees, I'm guessing that's typical is that typical? Um, so my wife is sorely disappointed. I mean, she had high hopes of a white Christmas and uh, just isn't happening so far. Um, we'll share this with you. It's no big secret. Um, You know, Caleb and I being on the same team loving each other is a testament to God's grace because he loves the Yankees and I hate the Yankees. I think the Yankees are everything wrong with sports, so on and so forth. And uh, the teams uh, that's in second place that I hate, on my list of second place of teams that I hate, are the Duke Blue Devils. And um, so uh, Duke came into town, their head coach asked me to come and speak to the team and then gave me tickets to watch the Duke Blue Devils play, of all places, at Yankee Stadium yesterday. So that's my definition of hell, watching the Duke Blue Devils play at Yankee Stadium. But uh, all said, it was, uh, it was a joy to, to watch them and uh, win their first bowl since 1961. I'm guessing I'll be invited back to speak to the team next year if they get invited to a bowl. Well, I want to speak to you this morning from Ezekiel 36, And I want to talk to you about that dreaded R word, resolutions. That was your cue for the collective. Uh, We're just days away from the new year, which means it's time to start thinking about that. And there's a culture of cynicism when it comes to this issue of resolutions and this phrase, New Year's resolutions, and this culture of cynicism is nothing new. It's been going on for decades, if not centuries. I love what one anonymous person says about New Year's resolutions. This person says a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. Still another person exhaled. Many people look forward to the New Year for the start of an old habit. Alistair Crowley once quipped: May the New Year bring you courage to break your resolutions early. My own plan is to swear off every kind of virtue so that I triumph even when I fall. Joey Adams offered this encouragement May all your troubles last as long as your new year. And by far, my favorite is from F.M. Knowles, who had this to say about New Year's resolutions He who breaks a, revolu- a resolution is a weakling, he who makes one is a fool. Needless to say, what these quotes point to is something we already know. There's this culture of cynicism over the idea of New Year's resolutions. And yet, the problem that we face is that this culture of cynicism over New Year's resolutions runs counter to a longing that all of us have in our hearts and life. It's a longing to change. All of us have this desire, this this longing to break free of old destructive patterns of behavior. We we, want to walk in victory. We want to experience newness of life. We want to know freedom. We want to know change. Change. I think, by the way, that was was the appeal maybe of Obama in his first campaign is he offered something, and I'll leave it up to you to cast the verdict whether or not he came through on it. But he offered something that I think is at the very fiber of what it means to be human: the longing in us to change. There's one word I want you to write in the margin of your Bible, or maybe you put it in your notes app as it relates to Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. It is our text this morning. There's one word that sums up this whole passage. It is this word, change. Change. God says to his people, the nation of Israel, who are just living in, here it is, generations of destructive patterns of behavior, generation after generation after generation of just poor decisions, God shows up and he says, I'm going to change you. In fact, in our text, there's um, 13 I will statements, and one of those I will statements that God makes is found in verse 29, look at it, because in verse 29, God gets to the heart of the matter when he says, I will deliver you. The Hebrew word, and our text is originally written in a language called Hebrew, the Hebrew word for deliver, it literally means gap or distance, I love it. So that when God says to these people who have been walking in generations, years, decades of destructive patterns of behavior, when he says, I will deliver you, what he's saying is, God is saying, when I show up in your life, I'm going to put a gap, a significant distance between who you were and who you are. God says that when I get a hold of your life, no matter if it's January 1st, March 1st, September 15th, October 30th, whenever that happens, my work in your life is a work of change. In fact, the, the very um, Christian term, repent, It's really the idea of change. The very notion of sanctification, which is a huge theological term, simply is the idea of change. To follow Christ means to engage and embark on a mission of ever-changing, and I love the ing nature to it. That technically, for Christians, there's no such thing as, oh, I've repented of something as if that's over and done with. No, we are constantly putting a gap between who we were outside of Christ and who we are in Christ. In fact, the way that I know that I'm saved, and I'll talk more about this in just a few moments, is this idea of change. Now, now here's the question on the table. God, what kind of change are you offering? The kind of change God offers in our text is not just surface symptomatic changing. In other words, God is not just going to show up and say, I'm going to get you out of debt. Or, or you, you follow me, I'll make you a better husband or a better wife or a better um, worker on your job. No, 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 no. These are surface changes. In our text, God says, when I show up in your life, I'm going to deal with something he calls idols. In other words, I'm going to get to the roots of the change. Change. I'm not just going to deal with the surface systemic issues, I'm going to deal with the idols that drive our behaviors. See, the problem with New Year's resolutions is not that some of us set too high or too lofty of an ambition, if I understand our text right, the problem with New Year's Resolutions is that we don't set lofty enough, or I'll say it another way deep enough goals. Explain that to me. So, some of us, we're sitting here and we're going, New Year's resolution, I'm in a lot of consumer debt. And let's just use that phrase, consumer debt. And some of you guys are going, I, I just I need to deal with my consumer debt. And so my New Year's resolution this year is to pay off all my credit cards, pay off all my consumer debt. I want to just get rid of all of that. That's my New Year's resolution. Or maybe you're saying, I want to pay it down significantly. Well, that's great. But if you don't identify the idol that drove you to the consumer debt what happens is you may get out of debt, but if you haven't dealt with the idol, you'll find yourself right back at square one. So that if what drove you to the consumer debt is what we would call a status idol, the need to find a sense of value and significance and meaning off of appearances, what other people think about you, if what drove you to consumer debt was Emphasizing reputation at the expense of character, of of really valuing people's opinions about who they think you are, if you don't deal with that, then the change is going to be short lived. See what I'm saying here? God says, when I get into your life, I don't want to just deal with the debt, I want to deal with the idol that's driving the debt. Or some of us are saying, my New Year's resolution is I want to be more engaged with my family. I, I, I want to be a family person. I, I've been spending too much time at work and so on and so forth. And man, I, I've just been working too many long, unnecessary um, hours. I, I want to engage more at home. Well, that's great. But as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great mid-20th century London preacher said, learn to ask the question why. What's the idol there? What is the surrogate savior behind your work obsession? Maybe it's a success idol, basing my sense of value and self-esteem off of my performance. Now, if you don't deal with that idol and you just say, I'm going to engage more at home, well, here's what's going to happen. You'll engage more at home, and then you'll go, but I'm not performing the way that I was on my job, and so over time, you'll just drift back to more long hours at work. God says, I don't just want to make you a better family person or get you out of debt or cause you to lose weight. God says, I want to deal with the idols. I want to bring about change. Now, the question on the table is, and I've really got three points, and the first point I just want to lift up is, is why do you want to change? Our text, right off the bat, in verses 22 and 23, deals with the motivation for change. He says in verse 22, he says, we've got a problem. Houston, we've got a problem. He says to his people, you have profaned my name among the nations. The idea of God's name is the idea of character. In Old Testament times, you you gave a person a name, not because it sounded cool, but you, you gave them a name in the hopes that they would live up to their character. Now, in some ways, we still stick with this. I don't see too many um, parents naming their kids Jezebel or Bathsheba, right? Because those names are associated with bad character. But in Old Testament times, the idea of name was the idea of character. And God is saying, you have profaned my name, your sin, you have you have put dirt on my reputation. You have drugged my character through the dirt. He says, I've got to redeem that. So he says in verse 22, will you, will you look at it with me? He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is, here it is, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know, here it is, that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Don't miss this. God says, I'm going to change you. But God says, please don't get it twisted. I'm not into changing you just to change you. God is not concerned about changing Brian Loritz just to change me. He says, I want to do a work of transformation in your life so that the change is so astounding and unbelievable that your changing, transforming life becomes a billboard that makes me famous and my name great among the nations. That's change we can count on. The American narrative approaches resolutions as saying, I've changed, look at it, look at me. God says, no, that's not the biblical narrative. I want to change you. I want to deal with your idols. I want to do a work of astounding transformation so that people will see me. I was thinking about this this week, and um, for some reason, I got to thinking about when we were a little boy... um, Whenever our nicer clothes would get dirty, uh, we, we would take it to Ponder's Cleaners. This a random, random thought. I, I just remember, why do I, why do I, decades later, remember the name Ponder's Cleaners? Because like most cleaners, when you would take your clothes to them, and then they'd do the work of change or transformation on your clothes, they don't just hang those clothes up on a generic hanger and give it back to you. No, typically what they did, and this is true of Ponder's cleaners, they hung your new, transformed, changed, clean clothes on a hanger that had a big white sheet of paper over that hanger that says, in big blue letters, Ponder's Cleaners. Now, why did they do that? Why didn't they just hang it up on a generic wire and save themselves some paper costs? Because they were not interested just in cleaning your clothes, but they wanted to use this opportunity of cleaning your clothes so that it could be an advertisement for them so that people could see who did the transformation and would be drawn to Ponder's Cleaners. That's verses 22 and 23. God says, yes, I want to change your life. But don't go the atypical American narrative where I change you and it's just about you. I want to change you in such a way so that your life says God did this. So that now that, um, that changes the narrative on some things. Um, I was talking to my mentor and, you know, just kind of the running narrative of my life. My, my metabolism runs at about two miles an hour. I mean, i look at a cookie and gain 10 pounds, much less eat it, right? So, you know, I'm just, you know, every New Year's is just kind of the same old thing. I, mean, I just want to lose weight and lose weight and lose weight. And um, I just remember my mentor saying to me one time, well, why? Why do you want to lose weight? Interesting question. And he went on to explain, he goes, here's a compelling reason for it. If, if the narrative is just lose weight, just for the sake of losing weight, that's not a compelling biblical narrative, but wait a minute, Brian, what if you looked at it this way, that God has called you into vocational ministry, he's given you gifts to proclaim his glory, he's given you opportunities to do this. He goes, here's a thought, your ministry will only last as long as your body. I mean, just think about that for a moment. I think there's some people who just died and gone to heaven, I'm being facetious, and God's like, what are you doing here? Why are you so early? So maybe my motivation is, God, I want to make your glory and fame known for as absolutely long as possible to as many people as possible." All right, I'll go to the spin class. That's a different narrative in "Girl. How'd you do it? It's a completely different narrative. Or maybe looking at verses 22 and 23, now that I've got this compelling why, it's more than just me getting out of debt, it is now me saying, now I've got room financially, I have margins in my field to be able to proactively and generously give spontaneously to the things of God and further God's renown, God's fame among the nations. Or now, going back to this whole idea of needing to engage more in my family and wanting God to change me along those lines, now if the narrative becomes, verses 22 and 23, I want to make God know, now I want to come home and spend more time with my family because I want to disciple these kids. I want to mark them. I get one shot to release them. See the different narrative there? There. What's the motivation for change? It's not me, it's the glory of God making his, his name great among the nations. But what's the method for change, secondly? Uh, look at verse 24. God says, here's the method, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Here's the kicker, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So I hope you see where this is going here. The motivation for change is a desire to display the glory of God. Whether it's how I handle finances, manage weight, whatever it may be, I want to display the glory of God But now we're getting into desires, motives, and here's the key. I I can't change my desire or motives. God says 13 times, I will, I will, I will, I will, which he is the one who does it. And please notice God's method of change. God's method of change is not just dealing with behaviors, But his method of change is change that happens on the inside and leaks outward. The problem with New Year's resolutions is they tend to be behavioral modification. Do this. Study more. Work more. Work out harder. Do, do, do. And if you go the direction of behavior modification, you'll end up on one of two paths. One is for those of you who are extremely disciplined and you're able to white knuckle it, grit your teeth, bring about the change, well, you'll become a self-righteous Pharisee. Narcissistic. Who can boast, look what I did. You know what got what Jesus called the Pharisees? Whitewashed graveyards full of dead men's bones. You're a wonderful looking tombstone. You look great on the outside, but there's nothing here in the heart. Or the second path you'll go down is, is that of the cynical prodigal who you try to change, but it's on your own terms, and so you can't change. So now we get cynical about the whole idea of change, but we long for change, but we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, I can't do it, so why even try? In this text, God offers a third way. God says, let me do it. That just like we can't perform quadruple bypass surgery on ourselves, God says the problem, Brian, with your behaviors are not the behaviors, it's the heart. So here's what I want to do. I want to rip out your heart of stone Give you a heart of flesh. A great example of this is David in Psalm 51. Here is David. If you don't understand anything about David, the second king of Israel, here's a man who had a, a problem with women. Committed adultery, tried to cover it up by committing murder. Finally, Nathan the prophet comes to him, calls him out, and David says, I need to change. He writes this long prayer in Psalm 51, and notice what he says in verse 10 with me on the screen. In Psalm 51, verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David says, God, I've got messed up behaviors, but I don't want you to just give me new behaviors. God, I need a new heart. David understands the reason why he did what he did was not just a behavioral issue, it was an expression of his heart. It kills me to watch athletes or some politician or some celebrity say something insensitive or do something they they should not have done, and then their apology is, that's not really who I am. It's not the biblical understanding. I say bonehead things because I have a bonehead heart. God's method of change is to not just deal with your behaviors, it's to deal with your heart. And notice what he says I'm not going to just work on your heart of stone, I'm going to get rid of it. One scholar, Peter Jeffrey, has this to say about this whole idea of heart of stone. He says, what does God mean when he says that a person has a heart of stone? He's referring to human nature, defiled by sin. And he says, there's nothing to be done with it. it. Cannot be repaired. It must be scrapped and replaced with a heart of flesh. Hear these words. Human nature, Peter says, cannot be mended. It is not like an old house that can be put right with a grant from the council. It is rotten throughout. Its foundation is gone, and every timber is worn out. This is why God makes no attempt to repair it. He will not repair it. It needs to be replaced. When a person, what a person needs is a new heart, a new spirit. And a new nature. God isn't interested in fixing us. He doesn't want to take what we have to offer. His transformation is an extreme makeover. Our family spent the last 12 years in Memphis when we first moved to Memphis to plant this church um, Things, of course, were tight financially, and uh, but we had enough to buy a house, and it was an ugly house on a street filled with ugly houses. Uh, one of the ugliest houses on the street was right at the end and, uh, of the street. <clears throat> I can see it now, and, and the owner, we weren't surprised when the owner put it up for sale, uh, but while we weren't surprised, uh, we neighbors of also ugly homes, we kind of said to one another, yeah, good luck with that. And sure enough, this house sold within a matter of weeks. Couldn't believe it. Who's the idiot who would buy this house? Well, the person who bought this house, the first thing they did was they bulldozed it. They didn't want to repair it. They didn't want to make it over. They flattened the thing. And they built one of the most beautiful, doesn't quite fit in our ugly neighborhood house They built one of the most beautiful homes, and that's exactly Ezekiel's point of what God wants to do with us. God's not into trying to fix you. He doesn't want to remodel me as if I bring him something. Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Wants to give us a new heart. Well, finally, w- w- what does this change actually look like? What are the manifestations of it? Let me give you three quick things as we close. One, new affections, new desires. The idea of the word heart—it's an all-encompassing will uh, term. It means uh, emotions, will, intellect, and really the way that you know is the context. And the context for the word heart here in this text is really the idea of what the old Puritans would call affections. God says, when I save you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a new heart. And part of the way that you know that you've got a new heart is you have new desires. I always get a little nervous about people who call themselves followers of Jesus, but have no desire for the things of God. God. God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, and with that new heart comes new desires and new affections and new longings. God says, I'm going to do that. Now, the question on the table is, well, wait a minute, Brian, I don't always desire God. I don't wake, out, uh, wake up every single morning and jump out of my bed going, you know, can't wait to read the word this morning, can't wait to pray. I don't feel that way every time. There's a reason why they're called spiritual disciplines. First Timothy, Paul writes Timothy and he tells him, discipline yourself, Greek word gumnadza, from which we get the English word gymnasium, work out, discipline yourself, for the purpose of godliness. The disciplines, spiritual disciplines, the old Puritans would actually call them means of grace. That one of the ways that we fan the flame of our affections for God when we feel that they're waning is we do those things that we don't feel like doing and yet in the process of doing what we don't feel like doing, the feelings then come. That's what C.S. Lewis once said when He said, If you're struggling with your feelings, treat that person that you're struggling with feelings towards as precious, and they will become precious to you. It's actually good marriage advice. It's exactly what's happening here. Secondly, what does this change look like? New affections, new desires. God does that. But secondly, He says, "I'll put put a, a, a right spirit within you." The Hebrew word for spirit's lowercase s. It is the Hebrew word ruach, which means animating force or life. It is the idea of passion. God says, "I will give you a passion for me." Ever ever talk to someone and you stumbled across some subject. And their eyes just lit up, and they talk for what seemed like hours about that subject. You go, wow, that means a lot to you? That's really the idea here. Thirdly, he says, not only that, I'll give you a new desire, new passions. But thirdly, what does this change look like? Verse 27 And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, here it is, to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's what he's saying. You'll obey. And yet the obedience that you're walking in is not because you're doing it, but it is my Holy Spirit within you giving you the power to walk in change. In other words... There's a lot of preaching today that talks about God and, and our motives, but our text is a robust, theologically comprehensive text in which God says, I'm not just concerned about your feelings, your desires, your affections. I am concerned about them, but I'm actually concerned about your actions as well. This is Philippians 2 12 to 13, friends. When Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, do those things, watch it, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will the desire and to do those things. That's a change we can count on. One of my closest friends in life is a guy by the name of Bobby Conway. I'll close with this story. Bobby describes himself in high school as, man, just, um, he says, I was just clueless. He said, man, in high school, I was addicted to drugs. If it could be smoked, I did it. He said, "Um, man, I was immoral. Um, Saw women as things to be utilized, not as people to be valued. He says, not only that, but this whole um, education process, man. He goes, man, I just, I didn't care anything about school, and it's a miracle I even graduated from high school. He says, I was disrespectful to my parents. I had a horrible relationship with my siblings. I, I was just an awful person. And then he says, here's, here's the deal. He goes, somehow, way, God got in my life. He goes, I got hoodwinked to go to a Greg Laurie evangelistic crusade in Southern California. He says, I'm sitting there angry with my friend who sold it as some opportunity for me to meet girls. He goes, I'm sitting there. And the next thing you know, Brian, I'm walking onto the field giving my heart and life to Jesus Christ. He goes, "I, I then, you know, joined this little church called Saddleback. Sit under this pastor and I started getting a hunger for the word of God, and immediately I stopped doing drugs. He goes, 1994, I go to AA process, and, and uh, I stopped drinking. I haven't had a drink since 1994. He goes, but not only that, he goes, I had a desire for God. He goes, this desire for God was so strong, I almost lost my job as a valet for the Ritz-Carlton Resort in, L- in Laguna Niguel. I says, how that happen? He goes, well, I was so passionate about Jesus that when people would give me the keys to their car to park, I would change the radio station to the Christian radio station. <laughs> he goes, my manager came to me one day going, man, there's dozens of people complaining that when they turn the key to their ignition on, there's this Christian preaching at them. He goes, I had a desire to share my faith with Jesus. He says, I was sitting in a jacuzzi with my brother, shared Christ with him. He gets saved in the jacuzzi. And I go, I want to get baptized. He goes, I baptized my brother in a jacuzzi. <laughs> to know Bobby is just to know a changing person. This sermon is not to guilt us. But if you're sitting here, and you're going, I'm a Christian, but honestly, I don't see any change in my life. It's not the heart of the new covenant. To be a Christian does not mean to be perfect. (laughs) We all sin, and we will sin. But to go the way of Jesus is to constantly walk towards him to the degree that there's a growing gap between who you were and who you are. And when I change, there's no boasting in that. God does it. I submit and yield to him.